Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Right, welcome to Weekly Weights. It's episode 106. I'm Will. I'm joined as always by Alex. Hello. Hello. Um, and today we're doing a bit of a miscellaneous episode. Um, we're going to cover a whole bunch of things that have been submitted to our audience request form. We've spoken about it on the past couple of episodes. Um, but if you're listening now and you are a dedicated listener and you're going to come back next week, then please, please go on to either my Instagram or the Weekly Wade's Instagram. Click into our link trees. You'll see the Weekly Wade's audience request form. And there you can leave us Q&As, a few of which we'll address today. Topics for discussion, so something broader than a Q&A, something that might even cover a whole episode. Guest requests. And there's a miscellaneous section there too where you can just leave messages to the boys or give us underrated, overrated, properly rated suggestions, stuff like that too. Please do leave your socials if you do that. We are big fans of giving shout-outs to people who have interacted with us, as you guys know, because we often read reviews um, on air and sometimes also get angry at people on air publicly who've interacted with us. <laughs> Alex is nodding <laughs> very strongly there. If, you're, um, if you want to leave anything and not leave your socials, be prepared to be called a coward. Well, some of the most complimentary things we've had left have been done anonymously, and I'm presuming people just overlook it. Anonymously by cowards. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. Maybe. It's probably a bit like, you know, um, when you were, like, in your early teens through, like, late 20s, when you like a girl and you're just afraid to show it? <laughs> Forever? Probably, yeah, pretty much. It's probably a bit like that, you know? Like, people, people are crushing on us, Alex, and they're just... They don't want to get laughed out of the schoolyard for talking to the cool kids. What do you reckon? That's fair, but also there's no such thing as a bad question. True. Unless it's a bad question. <laughs> Can you give me an example of an actual bad question? Um, cardio thoughts? Yeah, actually, to be honest, any just no no context thoughts sucks. Like, if there's like an implicit structure to your question when it says thoughts, like I've publicly ranted about how much I hate thoughts before. If there's like an implicit structure to it, if you say, um, if you say, you know, it's been argued by a number of people that X, Y, and Z happens, this guy in particular makes this specific claim um, and, you know, on that basis thinks that you should do blah thoughts, you're essentially asking like, do you back this guy's opinion? That's fine. But if it's literally just a, a very broad topic, e.g. cardio, thoughts, Get the fuck out of town. Mm, correct. But if you're just coming up and saying, hey, boys, I really like you, then just like I would to anybody in real life who had a massive crush on me, I'd say, wow, that's enormously flattering and peculiar. Hasn't happened before. Yeah, um, well, what's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You must have terrible taste, but I really appreciate the kind words. And on the note of kind words, before we actually get on to being at all useful... Um, that's debatable. Yeah. Well, <laughs> when we make an attempt at answering some questions... Um, if you guys like the content, we really, really appreciate it when you share us on your Instagram. Um, please tag the Weekly Weights page as well when you do it because we are going to put more content out through that. We're going to be alerting people to when we have episodes and guests and opportunities like this to give us content. So share the episodes that you enjoy. Tag us, tag Weekly Weights. If you do leave us reviews, we are pretty committed to reading them on air unless they're very rude or offensive. 
I mean, even then, we might read them just we'll, like the redacted we'll definitely, version. We'll definitely read them <laughs> if they're rude or offensive. But point is, um, please do share us as much as you can because it does help both with our metrics and our enjoyment of doing this. So so we'd appreciate it. Um, and also, one more note. Um, if you go on your whatever your podcast app is and just go into the search bar and click on Peak Speak or type in Peak Speak, report. and if you are following it, unfollow it. If you're not following it, don't even bother. <laughs> it is really as easy as that. We're actually, we're not even asking you to do anything. We're asking you to not do something. Yeah. Unless you're already doing the thing, in which case stop doing the thing. Yeah. But either way, we're asking you to do, like put in less effort. It's like that scene in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, (laughs) where he's learning how to surf. (laughs) Do nothing. Do nothing at all. (laughs) You gotta do something. (laughs) Honestly, I reckon that movie slaps. Like, I really do think it's so underrated. Yeah, I agree. Very underrated. Oh, man. That was when Russell Brand, like, that was the movie that, like, made his name, hey? No, he was already popular. Well, what had that Russell was Brand done before that? A bunch of stuff. Stand-up and stuff. Yeah, but like as in stand-up. That was the thing that made him a movie star. And then they basically made vehicles for him. Like there was that other movie, Get Him to the Greek or whatever, where he just reprised the same character, but it was nowhere near as funny. That was the same director. That's Judd, Judd Apatow. Apatow? Mm. Judd? Is that his Judd. name? Judd, yep. Interesting name. I feel like... Um, do you know what nominative determinism is? No. Okay, it's... It's a bit of a joke, but it's basically the idea that like your name, um, your name determines your fate, right? That's literally exactly what it means. Mm-hmm. So the idea being like, if your name was Margaret Court, you were always destined to be good at tennis, and you know Usain Bolt was always destined to be good at running, mm-hmm. and so on and so on and so on. Um, it's a bit of a joke, but but like for as long as the term nominative determinism has existed, which is probably not that long. People have been like pulling out, um, pulling out examples of people who just have an incredibly apt name for their field of expertise. And there is something I was thinking about the other day. I was actually thinking about simulation theory, like the idea that we're living in a simulation. And I was thinking about like how 2020 has just been unbelievably surreal in so many ways. Like so, it's like somebody's gone fuck it. Like I really want to speed this, like speed this simulation up. Like have everything just. Yeah, let's shake the game. Let's shake the game up a bit. Yeah, and then I was like, oh, you know, maybe we are in a simulation. I was thinking along those lines. I'm like, yeah, they're they're really shaking the game up right now. And then I was like, you know, if I had a simulation, I'd want to make sure that all the people in like the semi-important and important positions had names that were just like just a bit memorable or like just a little bit a little bit left of center. And there's like there's just no like John Smiths or like Greg Joneses or anything running the world right now. Everybody's name is fucking like Donald Trump or Leonardo DiCaprio or you know whatever I don't know why Leonardo DiCaprio gets there because <laughs> he's a lizard person too but but then uh, um, on the note of nominative determinism basically like everyone in Hollywood has a fucking weird name and I know half of them are like yeah nom they're de not plumes. their real names yeah nom de plume that would be like that's your pen name if you're an author mm. I don't know what the effective thing is for an actor screen name nom de screen <laughs> But but anyway, Judd Apatow, he just sounds like an arty guy, you know? I reckon he, like, turned five and was like, well, fuck, I'm never going to make it in IT. Like, I better... Do you reckon his name's actually Judd, though? Nah, probably Is Judd a name? Well, like... What was was that um, thing you just said? Nominative what? Determinism. Because that reminded me of this thing um, on Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. He does this thing, it's called, like, he finds people who submit their name and their job to yeah. the show 
and it's like their name, their name matches their job. That's and, exactly. Yeah, what yeah. I was but about. one of them was um, one of them was like Dr. Hyman, and she was a gynecologist. That's huge. Yeah, there was like four people on the show, and they were all like literally unbelievable names. I met a guy. Right, speaking of Dr. Hyman, I met a guy. His name was Michael Proctor. I met him when I was traveling from Panama to Colombia by boat. Guess what Michael Proctor did? I don't know. No, he was a carpenter. But I thought you were going to think he was a proctologist. That would have been pretty funny. Um, I was going to say, like, Dr. Proctor. That would... <laughs> okay, so that joke was going over your head no matter what. Um, anyway... Yeah, real asshole, Michael. Hey, this was probably the worst introduction of all time. <laughs> One of our worst. So anyway, we're on the audience request form. We got Q&As. And the first one was by... I said Michael Bay, but that, speaking of Michael Bay, another director, loves to blow things up. He actually has got a boring name. This one is by um, what I think is actually Michelle Bay dot E-N-S. So M-I-C-H-I-E-L-B-A-E-Y dot E-N-S on Instagram and they ask as a coach what metrics should you log for your clients and then he gave some examples which we'll probably go through one by one one being estimated 1RM volume as tonnage relative volume I don't actually know what relative volume means sets per body part session ratings etc so Alex I guess probably the first question is what metrics do you log for your clients Um, each exercise RPE which yeah. is, the, is the first one. Um, that is what I give them to log. And if there is something that needs to be um, chosen on the day for them to log, then they obviously load the, uh, log the load. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are metrics which I keep track of myself, which the client doesn't see, like some of the ones mentioned, hard sets per week, which is split into um, like the different lifts. So like hard sets of squats per week plus any accessory work that could be considered squat accessory work and like then the leg press or yeah something. like leg press or um, lunges or something mm-hmm. and then that's split into you know bench press deadlift same thing um, and what was the next one uh, estimated 1RM for main lifts but this is generally reserved for competition prep I wouldn't usually use this for um, sets above 3 or 4 reps I think it can get a bit murky. We can go into this later. But I think yeah. it can get a bit murky um, using the RPE calculator for sets above, pretty much above three. Um, other stuff I track. I don't track tonnage, total tonnage, because I think it's misleading. Um, what about you, Will? I, so I recently built these new spreadsheets and they allow me to track heaps of metrics but I actually deliberately don't look at the metrics. And the reason is, um, like, philosophically, I don't think it's useful to be looking at a whole lot of metrics for no reason. Um, and it's like, in science, what you what you do when you're, like, getting a big data set or what you should do is prior to actually looking at the data or, like, prior to even collecting the data, you say, this is what I intend to do with it. So, you know, I am going to survey the diet of all these Australians. And I'm going to see if there's an association between, between like, cardiovascular disease risk and potato chips. And then you do that and you do the analysis after the fact. Um, but you've already determined what you're going to do. And the risk of getting a giant data set like that 
and going and looking for associations and then saying, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to study that or declare it as important is like the risk of just coming across really spurious ones increases. Um, because like, if you have a lot of data, then there's by nature going to be just associations that exist. Right. And I think the same thing could be true with training metrics. Like my spreadsheets allow me to track estimated one RM, which I think is pretty useful in lots of ways. Um, and it tracks the number of sets that I, that people do and also the number of sets above certain intensity and RPE thresholds and also the number of sets below intensity and RPE thresholds. And I can plot all of them against each other if I want and look at it. Um, but what I tend to do for lifters is I track estimated 1RM loosely and I say loosely because like I don't necessarily think that a 5 kilogram increase in estimated 1RM necessarily means five kilos in the real world but a steadily increasing estimated one rm is a nice thing to see um so i track things like that loosely and then when i'm like looking at a trainee and i go i'm starting to observe something of a training response that i think is important then i go back to those metrics so i might say you know and in fact i'm going to cite a client for whom for whom she said this and so we basically tested it um so kate drury one of my clients, she was like, you know, when my bench moved best, I was doing an outrageous number of sets per week. She told me her program and it was like 26 sets above RPE 8 a week. Outrageous. I know. So Alex is like wincing. Like I can't think of anything worse. For me, if it was like, if hell existed, that would be it, right? So you said 28 or 26? 26 above RPE 8. You could probably do 6. Yeah, absolutely. I'd die. I'd probably do 2. But she was like, that's just what she did. And I was like, yeah, that's weird. But she told me that. And I was like, I was looking back over a couple of blocks of training and we'd been doing much more conservative volumes than that. And a lot of it more conservative. And I was like, oh, well, you know, like, why don't we try this? So we tried over the course of about four to six weeks moving up to, I think we ended up at 24 or 25 sets of bench. And because like, I just have an aversion to doing 28 sets at RPA 8 or whatever, only about half of them were hard and the other half were easy and there was a lot more variety and stuff. But her bench seemed to perform better. And so I guess in an applied sense, what I would do now that I have all those tracking tools at my disposal is I would say, okay, well, you know, it seems that Kate's bench moves best when it has reasonably high volumes of reasonably hard sets. So I might think I'm going to test that hypothesis. I then go in, look at that data. So how does her estimated 1RM track against against this like set difficulty you know so above rpe eight sets or like above 80 percent sets or whatever it is have a look and if i was like oh like there does actually seem to be an association when she's doing more sets her one rm seems to be improving more or estimated one rm seems to be improving more i'd say okay that's a tenable idea then i would test it so then i'd say okay well why don't we write a block that seems sensible that meets those parameters see how we go with it and then if that block works then i'd start going oh like we might be onto something here but I think the risk of like of having all these metrics at your disposal and then just like looking for associations and then being like, oh, okay, well, now that there's an association, there must be a relationship is like, I could just as easily see that when she was doing high intensity bench, her estimated 1RM was going up more, decide she must need high intensity bench, write a block and have it not work. Um, and I've just been led down the garden path because maybe her estimated 1RM bench was improving most when she was peaking, you know what I mean? When she was doing high intensity bench. So I think um, that was a very long way of saying I do track a few metrics, but I actually am I'm very I'm very cautious in using them for much, 
And I think if you are going to track metrics yourself, you want to have an idea in mind of like, what am I actually going to do with this data? Like, what's the point of knowing? Mm. So things like how many hard sets a week are you doing or like how many exposures to a lift are you doing and how many exposures are specific? Like that makes sense because you use it for planning, right? But like things like tonnage, um, which I don't think is really at all important unless it's like already bracketed in relative intensity, just like it means nothing. And I think it's just one of those numbers that people like to have because it's cool to say I did 10,000 kilos of squats, but like who fucking cares? Yeah, I think with tonnage, it's important to only compare how much total volume you did with another similar training block Mm. from, you know, and it might be like one competition prep versus another competition prep. And they have to be like similar enough in layout and in total sets and in, you know, total workload that you can actually draw conclusions from the two. If you say like you did more total tonnage in one training block where you're doing sets of 12 versus one training block where you're doing sets of five, like no shit you did because you're doing sets of 12. Mm. It's it's completely irrelevant data. And even the thing about just, I'm going to keep hitting on tonnage because I think it sucks. Um, it, like <laughs> even if you're, even if you're comparing tonnage within two competition preps, say Alex, like if you run the same prep, literally exact same numbers on paper and you're stronger, your tonnage by definition will be up, right? So so basically if you run the same block twice and you've gotten better, you'll see a tonnage increase. But it's not the tonnage increase that got you better, it's literally that you got better. Yeah, and you would see that you would see that metric expressed in estimated one RM and in RPE of maybe the same load being lower or maybe a higher load being the same RPE. Yeah, like so you would like, see that you would see that relationship with other metrics. Yeah, it's just a derived metric of like, oh I've improved. But then the second half of that is as you get stronger and stronger, it may be that you actually need less tonnage acutely um, because you just get like more stressed by it or or that the tonnage won't increase concomitantly with your strength. So like, you know, I squat 250-ish kilos now and I can't do as much squat volume as I could when I squatted 190 kilos because it's just harder. Um and maybe my tonnage is similar, but I would suspect it's, if anything, a tiny bit lower sometimes. And it's literally just because if I tried to do as much tonnage with similar relative loads now, like I'd just get really tired and not actually progress as much. So again, it's like, what are you using tonnage for in when you're trying to like figure out a training dose? Like I'm sure there's times when it's useful, but again, it comes back to like, what are you using the data for? And is this the best, the best actual like, metric to use to make that decision and rarely do i think it's tonnage and particularly when you throw in you know really easy sets that you know you wouldn't consider to be in your hard set metric Mm. that are adding to your tonnage that could just be noise yeah absolutely um so yeah lots of things to consider so i think the the take home from this is decide which metrics you will track and have a purpose for each metric so know when you're going to look at a certain metric and why you're going to look at the certain metric Um, and then don't get paralysis by analysis and just look at numbers all day and try and draw conclusions when you know you're just clutching at straws absolutely there was one one he he she michelle bay.ens suggested which was session rating like session Mm rpe i actually really like session rpe um and I don't think session RPE is necessarily the best indicator of like, um, of when to make like 
changes within a within an exercise but i like using session rpe and i do it with my squad and with a couple of the templates that i've written that are not for powerlifting that are on my website um to sort of determine just whether like the total the total volume and difficulty of an exercise session is like somewhere within tolerable bounds but still hard enough that you would expect it's productive and i think there was some research recently um i'm blanking on i'm blanking on the exact findings that basically found um basically found that you could use session RPE somewhat to help plan training progression. But I think it's, it's best use is basically just to see like, what is my overall training dosage like? And are my easy days actually feeling easier than my hard days and stuff like that? So I don't mind session RPE. And I think that's a useful way of getting some subjective info. Yeah, I agree. I think the best use of session RPE is to compare the days with each other. Mm. So when you have a particularly hard squat session planned or hard deadlift session planned, that should be quite a high number. But when you have those lighter days, you know, you should be expecting quite a low number. And if that number is too high, you may need to, you know, create more contrast or you may need to take away a set from a hard day so that you're fresher or you may need to, you know, move things around so that it's a little bit more even. Yeah. And but even- it, it gives you an idea of like, obviously when we write a program, we intend on, you know, sessions undulating in a certain pattern that allows enough recovery within the week and within the the training block to actually perform when you need to and if that's if that is off from what we thought it was going to be it's important to know that so that we can make changes next time yeah for sure and i i also think not just comparing within the week but also comparing the same day week on week um you know obviously like life happens outside of training and it might impact how hard a session feels but like what you might expect over the course of a four or six or eight week block is that your session RPE might start pretty submaximal and spend a lot of time in that sort of money range of like six to eight. And then in the last week or two, when you're leading into a deload, if you're like, oh, session RPEs are consistently like eight, nine, you know, suddenly you're like, okay, well, this person's finding training really, really hard. Like how much more can I squeeze out of this lemon, you know? And in and, and the inverse of that, if, you know, you're getting to the final week of the training block and you're seeing sixes and fives, like, yeah. you know, we can afford to throw more at them. Yeah, um, And I, th- I think the other thing with planning, um, you can use session RP to determine roughly which days people actually feel fresh and feel good. Mm. Um, and then you can put, you know, your hardest training days on those days. For instance, for my template that I use for most people is um, hardest squat days Monday. But if you keep reporting that, you know, you don't feel good on Monday and your session is harder than anticipated on Monday, we don't have to put that heavy squat down Monday. We can move it. But it's just more information that we can use for planning. Absolutely. Um, So it's occurred to me now that it's this same person who asked about the forearm development last week. Oh, yeah. So reverse shout out. Late late shout out for that. Sorry, mate. Sorry, mate. Yeah, you got a... Lady. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, whoever you are. Um, yeah, you got to make it a little bit clearer. Okay, and then one last question for today was, and again, I think this is by Michelle, but I'm not 100%. Um, last cue. Do you think that hours asleep before midnight are more beneficial than hours post-midnight? Alex, you spend the most hours asleep, so I feel like you're the best to answer this. Um, This is, I have absolutely no idea. Okay. Um, what I know about sleep is the most important thing is the quantity of sleep. And the next most important thing is the quality of sleep. And then I think after that is when you go to sleep and when you rise, is that correct? 
I'm not certain. That's that's how little I know. Um, I will give an anecdote though. You know when you go to bed early, like yeah. you know nine o'clock, and you wake up, and you know just without an alarm or whatever, and you're like, oh, I feel okay, and then you check your your um phone to see what time it is. How often do you check your phone and it's like still before midnight and you feel okay? Like never. Oh, for me, like if I wake up and I've been asleep for like three hours and I wake up and I like, I'm like, oh, I could get up now. And I check my phone and it's like 11.45 p.m. I'm like, that's so strange. But if I were to get up and it was like four or three, I'd feel terrible. Do you reckon there's any correlation there or do you reckon that's just nonsense? Honestly, and I don't want to roast you on air. <laughs> Go that's for it, dude. fucking bullshit. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> um, I think what might be happening is literally the time of your sleep cycle that you're waking up. Yeah. Or perhaps that you're going to bed earlier than is than actually suits you. Well, I think if you wake up at the start of your sleep cycle, or like if you wake up between sleep cycles, you generally feel better. Regardless yeah, of like time. You normally you normally yeah you come to wakefulness at a certain part of the sleep cycle, but what I'm saying in this instance is maybe like if you're going to bed at nine o'clock. So there is a thing called a chronotype, right? Which is like it's a wanky way of saying that people have different body clocks and operate at different times of the day, better and worse. So like I'm a reasonably early chronotype. I wake up before six a.m. most days without an alarm happily, and like getting up at five to go to work is like a little bit annoying. But I I get made fun of by my friends because if we go out to dinner at eight o'clock, I literally stop talking and I just start slouching in my seat and I like I just become dead to the world. I'm so bad at doing anything at night, right? Feed Will ciders. Yeah, you got it. Like or or energy drinks and espresso spirits. martinis. Oh, I love espresso <laughs> martinis. I'm a fucking fiend for them. You you should have seen how many I was just popping in my room. We'll, um, we'll get a few for my uh, birthday, Will. Hundred percent. But anyway, point is, I'm like. I'm skewed pretty towards the early end of the chronotype thing, right? And there are other people who are extremely late chronotypes. So, annoyingly, like, my best mate fucking loves staying up late. Like, Is that lock? Yeah. He'll go to bed 3 a.m. And, like, at midnight, he is wide awake. So, to him, the idea of, like, doing stuff all night is great, you know? You know what it um, is, man? It's years of playing basketball at Norths and the 10.20 p.m. game. Honestly, maybe, but again, for him, that's like that's late. It's a bit annoying, but he's still in his prime. Whereas yeah, for me, you'd have, have to roll me out of bed to warm up, and you'll have dinner at eleven thirty, and then like watch yeah. TV till two. Yeah. Um. Well, I also think his sleep hygiene sucks. I tell him all the time because I just like I presume that I'm better than him, and that's why he stays up late. But point is, he has a he's got a late chronotype. He actually doesn't mind waking up in the morning, like reasonably early, like eight, right. But he'll go to bed well after midnight comfortably. And there are some people who skew even further that way. And so when we talk about like what time of day should we be sleeping to maximize our return on it, my not knowing that much about research in sleep answer would probably be the time that actually suits like your normal sleep-wake cycle and the way that your body wants to operate. And so like, you know, if you are somebody who really isn't very tired until after midnight i don't reckon you're going to get magically more benefit from your sleep going to sleep when you're not sleepy than you would just waiting until you're sleepy and going to sleep um 
And likewise, if you're somebody like me where it's like, nah, 8 p.m., like I'm pretty well ready to get in bed, then like probably I do get more benefit in my few hours of sleep before midnight because like there's only a few after midnight for me to have, you know? Like if I wait until midnight to go to sleep, I sleep until my normal waking time and then the only thing keeping me in bed is that I just feel bad, not that I'm actually getting more rest. Um, So that would be the main thing and I guess sort of related to that would be like, you know, when in the bits that I do know about, like research on shift workers and people with sleep disruption and stuff where they have to, you know, operate at the opposite ends of the day to where they would normally be sleeping and awake, they do terribly. And so like, it's probably true that not all hours of sleep are equivalent and that disruption of like those body clocks are bad. And if that is the case, then probably as best as you can, accommodating your natural body clock in when you go to bed is best. That's what I think. Yeah. Um, to add to my little anecdote before, which was spot on, by the way. <laughs> Go just, on. <laughs> just perfect science. <laughs> um, <laughs> Can't even get a word out. Go on. You know when you check your phone and you see what time it is and it's still yeah. really early? Yeah. You feel like... Panic? Fuck yeah. No, you're like, fuck yeah, I've still got like six hours of sleep left. No, I literally Whereas like the other way around, it's like, oh, I've only got an hour. I think that's why I feel a particular way. I reckon there's a bell curve for when it's best to wake up at night because like if I go to bed, so say I go to bed at nine o'clock, which would be like actually pretty normal. Go to bed at nine o'clock. If I wake up at 11 and sometimes I do just bounce out of bed at 11 and I'm like, well, you know, like I think it's 5am. I'm like ready to go and then I'm like, oh, it's 11. What the hell? So exactly what I said before, which you laughed at me for. Yeah, but okay, I didn't. Yeah, I don't sorry, feel continue. Good. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, Jesus Alex. Christ, sleep scientist Alex. Um, <laughs> you said no. you get up and f- feel ready to go. That's exactly what I meant. <laughs> yeah, sure. Jesus. But when that happens, I panic, dude. I'm like, oh fuck! Like, what if I can't go to sleep? I'm in for like a long night of hating everything, right? But you're already ready to go. But what? Nothing good <laughs> happens at that time. So there's that. <laughs> or if I wake up at like four forty-five and I'm meant to be getting up at. 5.45 say I'm like I barely have time to go back to sleep and so like as I'm trying to fall asleep I'm like worried my alarm will go off you know um, but somewhere in the middle there's that sweet spot of like if I wake up at 1.30 2 amazing because I'm like oh bugger I woke up like I better just pee quickly and then go straight back to sleep and have a fucking bomb ass night of sleep again you know well I mean my thoughts behind this is the earlier you wake up the better yeah because you have no problem falling asleep pretty much ever do you pretty much yeah yeah like eat like comp day two grams of caffeine i'm out i like a light <laughs> i i can sleep after a comp like and i would say that i sleep okay but i wake up the next day and not just like bodily i feel awful i think my sleep quality must be trash probably from all the caffeine like i just i feel like my brain isn't functioning you probably fall asleep in a weird position yeah probably because my spine's all like yeah ruined yeah yeah um anyway i i trust that that was probably the most comprehensive answer on sleep <laughs> science that anyone's ever got yeah, go to stronger by science and ask them and they may, might actually give you a good answer you know i reckon they actually did um they did actually have a chat about sleep at one stage and actually they mentioned something that i really found interesting so i think his name is matthew walker um this dude who he went on joe rogan and he wrote a book called why we sleep wouldn't it be cool if Matthew Walker was the first guy who walked on the moon? That would actually be fucking dope ass. Um, but 
anyway, he wrote a book called Why We Sleep and he went on Joe Rogan and he ended up being, I think, like hired by Google as like a wellness health consultant um, because he'd written this book about like the health importance of sleep. I'm pretty sure that's one of his highest viewed uh, episodes. Yeah, well, that's, that's one of the things that was most messed up about this is some guy who I think studies sleep um, basically went through and only in the introduction um, fact-checked his book and it was all like... There were bits of it that were blatant just untruths, like just lying, and then there were bits where he deliberately misrepresented statistics, so he'd like draw a chart out of a study and chop off part of the chart that didn't fit with his narrative so it looked like a really strong linear relationship between you know say sleep and heart disease risk and stuff when in reality it wasn't um and and so they spoke about it on stronger by science and they spoke about this article um but if you were to google just like matthew walker why we sleep like fact check or something you can read this article and it destroys him like he basically just comes across as the biggest like fraud ever and it's the fact that that's one of the most viewed joe rogan episodes and that he's got like this high paying job from google and nobody's actually gone and like checked half of his claims it's outrageous um frauds frauds on joe rogan seem like very frequent, frequent. yeah Look, also li- speaking of joe rogan yeah shout out to spotify can we get a hundred million dollar deal please I reckon we'd have to get close because if you value every one of our views at like a thousand dollars and we've got a hundred thousand views, that's a hundred thousand thousands. Everybody knows there's a thousand thousand in a million, which means that's a hundred million. And to me, you guys aren't worth a thousand dollars. You're priceless. So what do you reckon, Spotify? Too easy. Alex is saying hundred million dollars. That's unbelievable for a podcast. That is pretty unbelievable. I actually listened to a Joe Rogan episode the other day because much as I typically don't rate his content because it's not as good as ours, that's another thing Spotify should consider. Facts. Um, he had this one with a guy called Jordan Jonas and that is an interesting name. Um, but this dude won a show called Alone where they drop you in the Canadian wilderness and they drop a whole bunch of other people and you can only take like 10 items with you. And you have no contact with other people and you have to film everything you do. You have to film eight hours of footage a day, right? And uh, who films? Yourself. Yourself. Selfie cam? Um, I don't actually know. But anyway, you have to like document all the stuff you do and it's basically who can survive the longest. So you have no contact with each other. And you can quit. Like you can give up and send a little beacon signal saying like, oh, I give up, come pick me up. Um, and the way the winner finds out they've won is eventually like somebody comes and gets them because they come and do like a medical check every two weeks or something. How long did he last? Uh, he was out there for 77 days, right? Um, and like, as in he brought no food. So like he would, he had like a really shitty bow and arrow that he was like hunting things with and like made a fishing fishing rod. And it's like full on freezing cold and stuff as well. Um, but he was talking about that and this guy had like, spent some time working in an orphanage in Siberia and like stayed with tribes people and stuff out there. If you guys want to just listen to like a really interesting like slice of life that you would never have experienced, look up the, I think it's Jordan Jonas episode of Joe Rogan. Fascinating, like really weird and very interesting. And also shoot Joe Rogan messages and see if he can get the boys on. Honestly, like he has had quite a few people on to talk about health and fitness. So I feel like we'd be pretty good. He had Lane on. 
Do you have? Oh, yeah. that's right. Lane went to argue with someone with, didn't he? with the keto guy. Yeah, it was yeah. Lane versus keto guy. Oh wow, that would have been productive. Would we go and smoke weed with Joe Rogan? Fuck yeah, I'd do fucking DMA elk, with him or whatever it's eat called. Elk, elk meat with jalapenos. What is it called? The thing that he likes, not DMT. DMT. Is that it? <laughs> yeah. What DM- is that? Um, it's a psychedelic. So I don't know if. I don't know if DMT and ayahuasca are even the same thing or what. Probably one probably one is different to the other. But there's one of those psychedelics. I've actually got some stories about this. <laughs> this is becoming a Joe Rogan episode. So one of those psychedelics is really known for you having trips that feel like they last a really long time. Like you can feel like you've been tripping for 40 years. Like you'll live a whole life and stuff, which is really fucked up um, when you have it. And like, there are people who set up businesses and things in the States. I'm pretty sure it's illegal in the States, but in the States and Central America and stuff where like a shaman will like literally take you through this ritual of having a drug and then you'll have trips. And some people, like I said, have really fucked up ones. And I met this dude who'd done it and he, he had like a really enjoyable but fucking crazy trip where he was led by a shaman. Um, but I met another guy. I stayed at a vegan hostel in Nicaragua um, and it was a chocolate factory. It was a fucking weird place. It was super cool. And the guy who owned it um, had also been doing this shit. And he truly believed that when he had done it, he'd had like a special revelation and he understood the universe in ways that other people didn't, right? And like that's the type of thing you can only say if you spent a lot of time taking psychedelics. But this dude, I said to him like, oh, what happened, right? Being like reasonably open-minded. And he was like, when I took it, my soul was catapulted out of my body. It was like I was drawn into a slingshot and shot. And I was like, okay, that's cool. And he was like, no, 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 wait. He goes, I got shot up into the sky. And I was like, okay. And he goes like, through the atmosphere, out of the earth. And I was like, wow. And he goes, I passed the International Space Station. By the way, I'm like, these are what he said. I passed the International Space Station and went through like all the debris around earth. Super cool, man. He's like, past the sun, past other planets. Like, okay. He goes, I got to the edge of the Milky Way, (laughs) right? He's telling me he's been shot this far. I was like, okay. He goes, I kept going past other galaxies. And he goes, I got to the end of the known universe. I was like, okay. And he goes, I passed the edge of the universe. And I was like, right. And like, in my mind, he's telling me this. And I'm like, this is like an experience that you've had, but you don't actually, like, you don't believe that you did that. But he firmly believed he, his actual soul had passed the end of the universe. And he said, when I left the universe, I met the creatures who really control what's going on inside the universe. And I was like, right. And he basically Simulation. said... Simulation. Boom. Boom. Yeah, well, maybe it's proven. Um, but he, he basically goes like, you know, I spoke to these people... And they gave me an understanding of how the energy of everything is connected. And he goes, then they sent me back to my body. And so he describes him in reverse order, getting shot all the way back from the edge of the universe to his body. And this whole time I'm like listening somewhat dumbfounded, right? And he goes, when I got back to my body, I realized I could see the flow of energy between all things. And he was like, and he was talking about like how birds in the sky are talking to flowers through energy beams that he could see and all this stuff. And I was like, that's pretty gnarly, man. And he was like, and what I realized is that the past and the future are the same and that there's no such thing as time. And and he just went off on this long ramble about how time doesn't exist. We're all connected by energy 
and like what is here wasn't there before but was and won't be there in the future but is and all this shit and he was like he finished this probably 20 minute rant and it was just like you absolutely have to try it man it'll open your eyes and he was like that's why i started this hostel and i was like you had like a divine spiritual revelation and decided to go to a fucking island on a lake in nicaragua and start a chocolate factory <laughs> to try and fix the world but that's what he did so anyway if joe rogan asks 100 percent, i'll do it firstly your ability to remember details and stories is incredible yeah secondly tripping seems like something that i never want to do and like actually terrifies me yeah honestly me too i think i'm too like controlling like, I don't even like getting... I was about to say I don't like getting drunk. That's a lie. Come but, on. <laughs> Come but on. no. But seriously, like, there's a degree to which, like, I don't like giving up, like, routine and control of myself and things, you know? It's one of the reasons, like, I don't drink until I'm blackout. Like, I drink until I feel pleasantly buzzed and then I stay around that until it's late and you just got to fucking smash it until nine you. Until 9 p.m. Yeah. Um, but no, like, seriously, you know, I can't imagine... I can't imagine deliberately exposing myself to that. But again, I think like playing devil's advocate to myself that's probably part of what makes it exciting to people is like relinquishing all control and having something completely abnormal mm. and out of their experience happen yeah i mean if all of those things that he said were true about time and energy i don't know if i would actually want to know that i think that would affect the way that i do things in life too much yeah but could it if yeah if time is not a if time is not a thing and not well, a construct and like you can just well, like, see energy between objects and stuff like that's yeah but like as in in a theory of what's, relativity what's, sense or whatever then like, what's the whatever. whole what's the whole point of like doing the job that we do if that's the case you i know? don't think there's a point to doing the job that we do anyway that's fair it's not a job <laughs> <laughs> I was talking this is going to be the best episode we've ever made I was talking more about like determinism um like and, I was talking and, like, literally, I was talking literally. <laughs> yeah <laughs> as usual <laughs> yeah I was talking about like determinism and nihilism and shit um but yeah also true it's not not much of a living let's be honest I mean it's 4.45 on a Wednesday afternoon and we're sitting here in our tracker decks talking about DMT um, but I feel like we have some productive stuff to talk about. So why don't we... Can we take a break? <laughs> yeah, let's take a break. Waka waka, check one, two. We are back. Kaboom. Kaboom. Kablamington. Kablamington. It's Weekly Weights, um, episode 106. And we're, we are going to get back on topic. So we got we got a bunch of actually really good discussion topics submitted um, and I don't know whether we're going to have time for all of them, but we'll start from the very start. So Kevin Bacon CK, who you may remember having submitted one of the fucking rudest reviews we've ever gotten. Four-star review guy. I, I, I know. I know who he is, Will. You don't have to remind me. <laughs> um, He's, Ke- but we're now friends. Yeah, we're now friends. He What's updated up, it to a five-star review. Thank you, Kevin. Um, he says, I'd like to hear your thoughts on different overload principles in general. Which ones you think are overrated and which ones you think work the best? And when he says overload principles, he's not talking about like adding sets, adding reps, adding load and stuff. He's actually talking about um, ways of like handling super maximal weights. So slingshots, board presses, block pulls, squatting in a pair of wraps, how you program them and when. Alex, what's your general thought on like 
training to handle super maximal loads? Well, I think it's extremely overrated. So if we were doing overrated, underrated, properly rated right now, that would be my answer. And the reason for that is um, these overload principles generally help you in the hardest in the hardest point of the lift. Um, so in raw lifting, in the squat, for instance, the hardest the hardest point of the lift is the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, in the deadlift, it's the bottom. In the bench press, it's the bottom. And if you're getting assistance away from the hardest point, you're then just training the easier portion of the lift. Um, and this can be useful if you have a particular issue uh, with positioning or with just strength at lockout, but it's pretty unlikely that you know your triceps are the limiting factor in um, your comp bench press. It's very unlikely that's that's the case. Can I play devil's advocate quickly? Um, I wasn't done, but okay. yeah, sure. No, wait. Well, yeah, let's do it now, and then you can pick up that thought. So, if it like it does help you in the in the hardest part of the lift, but other people would say, well, like if you if you get some assistance in the hardest part of the lift, and you're making the other hard parts or the other easier parts harder. If you were to if you were to set this stuff up well, couldn't you just make it so that the whole lift was hard the whole time? So you're still working as hard as you can through the weak point. So you're still training that as hard as you can, but you're also training the other stuff more. Like maybe that could be a benefit. Potentially, yeah. I mean, um, he mentioned a few examples for like board bench. I think it just changes the movement pattern a little bit too much. Yeah, or it certainly can. It it certainly can, yeah. Um, because in the bench we bring the bar down relatively straight and then we press back so if we're bringing the bar down straight to the to the chest and we're uh, and a board is on the on the bar or something in someone's hands and then we press back from there we're not really wanting to press back from there in a comp bench press because we should have already pressed back the bar should be slightly closer to the, to your face yeah. at that position so you're kind of teaching yourself a different movement pattern there are obviously caveats with this in that if you set it up well enough and you put yourself in the position that you would be in in the competition lift at that portion of the movement so like let's use block pull for example a lot of people use block pulls so that they can lift more weight and they try to quote unquote strengthen their lockout but they're really putting themselves in an advantageous position from the blocks which isn't realistic from the floor so they're strengthening a different pattern. They're strengthening different musculature. They're strengthening different movement. So in that instance, it's pretty overrated. Like, you know, if you see people, particularly sumo block pulls, get super upright from blocks and then they make the range, you know, a couple of inches, when in reality, if they were to get in their position, they would be much more bent over and it would be, you know, much like harder. their position in the normal pull. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Because they've already used that early knee extension. Yeah. They're more bent over which is going to make the block pull much harder. So if you do it in that way, it can be great. Yeah, so I was going to say, I actually think block pulls are one of the most useful deadlift accessories for lots of people, but I also am a real stickler for your block pull, resembling the position that you should get to in your deadlift. I I entirely agree. They are a great teaching tool and a great technical changer, but as an overload principle, which is what he asked for, Mm. overrated and needs to be correctly used to be to get a benefit from yeah i pretty much agree with you although i also like i always have this little thing in the back of my head of like just because i don't really use them like as in i don't program overload work for pretty much anyone so that probably says enough about like what i think of it generally um 
But just because I don't use it and I can't really think of a great rationale for it doesn't mean that other people haven't used it effectively. And maybe they could have gotten as good or better doing different things, but I don't know. And, you know, there are people like Mike Teixeira, for instance, has found like that some band resistor work and some chain work and stuff has helped with a number of his lifts and a number of his lifters. And like he's not somebody who is like doesn't approach his own thinking with skepticism. So as in there must be a reason. And for me personally doing banded deadlifts, which isn't, that's not actually overload work. It adds overload at the top of the lift, but it makes it harder. Reverse banded work might be overload work. But like doing some banded deadlifts definitely gave me a different training stimulus. And so there might be a place for it. Hmm. But generally, I'm of a similar opinion to you. What I will say is that when people have, when people that I know have used overload work effectively, it hasn't been to just like, hit the heaviest single possible in the overload stuff. It's actually been to get through some volume with it. Um, and not like heaps of volume, not like sets of eight, but as in like slingshot was an example Kevin gave us. Most people that I know that have used the slingshot well have like done their normal bench and then put the slingshot on and done like a three by three at somewhere between 90 and 100% of their bench max. Um, and likewise, board presses, like most people I know don't do great doing like a single off a board. They do like some threes and fives where they really use it for some strength work in that position. You know, like that would be my general, my general gist is like if you picked it for a reason and you programmed it with enough of a training dose to actually get you better, like it could work, I guess. Yeah. And the other thing to note is like if you're using these, these techniques, not necessarily for overload, but to get through more volume, like you said, Will, it makes the hardest part of the lift a little bit easier, which could take away some stress from the joints. And I'm thinking particularly about the bench and the squat in this instance. If you know, if the if you're using squats with chains, for instance, and it's like let's say it's 200 kilos at the top and 160 in the hole, you know that 160 in the hole might be right about the sweet spot for you where it doesn't beat your hips up. Yeah. But then you're still getting some work through the top end, you know, at a little bit heavier of a load, which might provide some stimulus for you. Similar idea with the bench press with chains, for instance. Um, that can be like a nice tool to relieve some niggles and keep you training healthier. But as far as like, I mean, the way the question was framed, like these tools aren't tools that we would use for overload sake. We would use them in other ways, I think. Yeah, like for a training effect, which that's so weird. Um, I want to rephrase the question in a much more interesting way. What's the coolest overload method? And what's the lamest overload method? Chain's easily the coolest. 100% the coolest. <laughs> There's so much cooler than Lamest other overload method. Yeah. Five board equipped bench press. <laughs> five board just because no ROM? Or like, or like um, box squats. Really high box squats. Yeah, so stupid. So uh, here's... I think there's actually like... You can, you can basically make a framework for assessing whether overload work is cool. So does it let you actually lift, like as in put more weight on the bar so it looks cooler? That's pretty important. So like pretty much every overload thing meets that criteria, right? Um, yeah, except like banded stuff because bands look dumb. Yeah. So well, that was the next one is like band resisted stuff, lame as shit because you can't tell that there's extra resistance and you can't quantify it. Like when you say I deadlifted 200 kilos and a band... People are like, basically they hear 200 kilos. No one cares about the band. So bands are lame. Um, but if you do reverse banded, you might deadlift 300 kilos and people forget that there's a blue band. So that's pretty cool. So number one is, can they see more weight on the bar? Crucial. Number two is, 
the more of your range of motion you preserve, the cooler it looks. Because if you deadlift 300 kilos with a reverse band, people still see you lift 300 kilos off the floor. Bless you. Bless me. Um, They still see you lift 300 kilos off the floor, which I think is crucial. But if you do reverse band, five board bench, what they see is a bar moving one inch. And that's super fucking lame. So you want long ROM and you want to see more weight on the bar. And the reason that chains really get it is because it's like a whole other implement and it just makes a sick noise. And I think that's something that other overload principles can't compete with. Chains are very like, very like part and parcel to powerlifting, like the underground scene of powerlifting. Like it's metal, it makes a loud noise. It's like clangy and cool. Yeah, it's, it's, there's something primal about lifting chains. It's cool. And particularly if, like, the chains hit the floor really early on the way down. So th- you're not lifting any of the chains on the way up until, like, the top two inches. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's, like, optimal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Because you're getting the most amount of chain noise as well because it's, like, always touching or coming off the floor. Um, we have another discussion topic by by ramen fundamental strength so ramen underscore fs that one will be too long yeah that's what i was going to say is i think that that one could actually be worth an episode so ramen shout out we we copy but we're not answering now ramen noted (laughs) yeah get noted (laughs) all right but this discussion question is controversial and we love controversy um it says deliberately not leaving my socials for this question PA members being taken off the ASADA RTP, so registered testing program, at the same time, at, or random testing program, I don't know, at the same time as PA disappeared off the Sport Oz recognized list. So what this person is referring to is that Powerlifting Australia um, had a big pool of athletes that were in the registered testing pool. So they they had to you know say where they, like they had to submit their whereabouts and things so they could have random testing and so on which is part of ASADA's coverage um, of drug-tested sports. Um, and all of them were told that they were no longer they no longer were on the list at the same time. And then it turns out PA has disappeared off the sports or's recognized list, which um, ASADA testing only applies to recognized sports on that list. So it means that PA is no longer ASADA tested. Um, and then the question is, is PA working to get recognition back or is APU likely to get it? So for those of you who follow powerlifting politics, I'm sorry, but also um, basically if you recall back to when Powerlifting Australia was kicked out of the IPF along with all of Oceania, um, the APU was formed as a different IPF body within Australia and PA is part of World Powerlifting and World Powerlifting is attempting to rival the IPF internationally. Um, So basically the question is, What's going on with drug testing in powerlifting, and is PA going to going to get back in the Asada testing pool, and will APU get it? And Alex, why don't you give them our exclusive scoop that only you and I know? Uh, nothing. Yeah, we got no idea. I have absolutely no <laughs> idea. Um, literally zero. There hasn't been any special communication to either of us, so don't know. We should call Robert and find out. Yeah, we could call him, not even tell him that he's on the record. Oh, just... do you want to call him right now? No. Nah, Put him on be, speakerphone? That would be extremely unethical. Well, we um, can just not... Nah, we won't. We won't do it. Um, <laughs> we can just sh- not air it if he's not happy with it. <laughs> nah, in short, um, we don't know. And... Um, so, so long as... Um, breaking news, I'm competing in two weeks. 
Oh wow, we are announcing that on the podcast. Yeah, I, just, I was told. Not I was to just going to tell that. a joke. Okay, go on. Um, so long as this means that I don't get tested in two and a half weeks, and I can keep taking my band pre workout, then I'm cool. What if you could go full blast and still not go nine for nine? Imagine that. <laughs> like just. <laughs> You are the biggest choker. I, I hope you miss a lot. I'm a choker. Yeah, well, I mean, I've also You're gone 7 bad. from 9 a few times. Um, we're both bad. Yeah, we're both pretty bad. At do bad. as we say, not as we do. Um, should we move on to anything else? Yeah, we have a variation masterclass. Uh, I guess my last thing on this is that um, presuming that PA does have a commitment to drug testing, if they're not in the in side of testing list, they still can get testing done privately at large competitions and I know that for certain for certain powerlifting bodies that's just the only way that they can get the, that they can get things done um, but whether or not that's going to be tenable just because of the financial cost I don't know so I presume there is some stuff going on behind the scenes to try and get back in that testing pool I just don't know what um, what the politics is about it and so we can reach out to Rob for that Okay, we have two variation masterclasses. I think we do one. I reckon we. I reckon we don't do any. I reckon we save it because it's, it's already. We've already done over an hour. Okay, let's save it. We're gonna take a very quick break and do it underrated, overrated, properly rated. All right, back soon. Okay, we're back on weekly weights. We're doing underrated, overrated, properly rated, and. I'm going first because I can't remember if I've already asked my prime one to Alex and I've got a backup just in case. Alex, no, 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 no. Protein pancakes. Have I asked that one yet? You haven't. Okay. Thoughts? Um, look, personally, overrated. Yep. Um, I think any food that is has protein powder added to it is generally worse than the food without the protein powder. Absolutely. And I would prefer to eat said food, whatever it is, fill in the blank, on the side with a protein shake. Preach it, brother. Keep going. Um, pancakes are awesome. Yep. Handy. And there's there's no reason to have mediocre pancakes. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah, just yeah. hype man. <laughs> I'm hype manning you hard because you're literally speaking from my soul right now. Go on. Um, yeah, pancakes are absolutely fire. And if you're having pancakes just to fit your macros, like, you know, maybe just have like one less pancake and then have a protein shake on the side or like don't use as much maple syrup or like use Chobani instead of ice cream or whatever. Oh, man. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, any food that you add protein powder to like oats with protein, oh, the oats suck. Um, okay, sorry. Now I'm. Oats, <laughs> now oats, you are getting wrong. <laughs> oats suck. Full stop. And oats are actually made better by with my adding protein so, powder. No. Okay. So you don't like oats, which makes you having an opinion on how to make oats well, like a bit of a stretch. But that's fair. Like I'll wear that because oats suck. Oats. Oats. Overrated as fuck. They're the most overrated. <laughs> this food. is wrong. No, no. Oats are the most overrated food by fitness people because, like, somewhere along the line, someone was told that oats are what you should eat in the morning, and like nothing else. And oats are the carbs that you should have in the morning, slow digesting, blah blah blah. And now everyone fucking eats oats, even though they don't taste good. And oats are shit. No. So this is where you're wrong. Firstly, oats taste good. Incorrect. Secondly, oats. Oats are like a blank canvas and you can create all sorts of meals on them. You can literally have savory oats with fucking like egg and bacon and it's fine. But you can also turn oats into a delicacy. 
they are enjoyable. You can cook them all sorts of different ways. And even though them being a clean food is a bit of a meme, they are actually really healthy and they actually have a great nutritional profile. So like you, they're actually a really good food to eat all the time. And adding protein powder to oats can be okay. It's not like an essential, but it actually can be okay. That's probably the one food where I'm like whacking some protein powder in it. That and Shabani, like just dumping some protein powder in it, both fine. As far as I'm concerned, that's just fine. So your answer up until pancakes ended was great. And then it just became fucking shit like your stupid ideas about sleep. That's what I reckon. My stupid ideas about sleep that you entirely <laughs> agreed with and completely confirmed <laughs> like five minutes later after roasting me. Well, I don't agree about your shit ideas on oats. I'll tell you that much for free. My turn. Like, oats are like oats are like sparkling mate, water. Give it up. Oats are like, sparkling water is great. Oats as well. are like sparkling water. Everyone eats them slash drinks them, and they're both shit. And for some reason, everyone's just agreed. <laughs> globally that we all eat oats and drink sparkling water and they both fucking suck <laughs> sparkling water is fucking sparkling good. water tastes like people nothing. say it tastes like static it tastes like shit no it's good it's actually good static water tastes as good as your hair looks right now my hair doesn't look good <laughs> no, but your hair normally never looks it's good <laughs> fuck off tell me you're stupid give me your stupid topic alright overrated underrated properly rated we alluded to this earlier yeah. estimated 1RM um, actually, oh, that was something I was going to correct you on. I don't, I think it's properly rated, but I'm saying it's properly rated on aggregate. If you got one individual, get one individual, they would sit way far either side. There are people who think it's completely useless. Wrong. There's heaps of potentially useful uses for it. You probably just haven't thought of them. And there's people who think it's like gospel. Wrong. But I think if you were to sum up everybody and average it, they'd be actually close to properly rated. And you said um, tracking estimated 1RM is probably not useful above three or four reps. And I think that's true if you care about the actual accuracy of estimated 1RM. If you're tracking it above, yeah, a few reps, you're bound to be falling very, very far from actually estimating your 1RM. But there's a difference. There's two concepts when we think about like a test of anything. One is precision. So how repeatable is that test? If you test the same performance or the same value, will you get a result that's pretty much the same with the test? And then one is accuracy. So how much does the test reflect reality? So if you were thinking of like shooting at a target, say, um, your accuracy is how close to the bullseye you're getting all the time. And your precision is how closely are your shots clustered. And as we move away from, from one rep, when we're doing an estimated one RM, our accuracy decreases, right? We move further and further from the bullseye. But I still think that that can be fine, provided that the precision when we're comparing when we're comparing week-on-week performances stays reasonably good. And obviously, because the calculation is static, if you're basically rating RPEs within about one point of each other with reps within about one of each other, then you can still use estimated 1RM pretty effectively to sort of see like, is my training trajectory kind of good right now? Um, you know, and like it takes a, a little bit of wariness just to not like, not sort of read too much into noise. I'm going to sneeze. <coughs> Bless you. Thank you. Um, really sneezy day, but like, but like I can do. Will's allergies are. Yeah, they're really flaring up. Um, but like I can be doing sets of eight, right? And I can still track estimated one RM, 
And like I said, I said this when we were talking about E1RM ages ago. Like if I might see a five kilo increase in my estimated 1RM, it doesn't mean that my 1RM max has actually gone up by five, but that's still an indicator that my performance in my eights is improving, right? So it's still a useful metric. It's just not always measuring true estimated 1RM. It's just a measure of like... Well, it is measuring true estimated 1RM. Oh, sorry. I should say it's not measuring true 1RM. Yeah. Well, I agree with everything that you said, but I think... So you still think it's overrated? I think it's overrated because I think people misuse it. And yeah, but you if, also think oats are bad. So like, if why you, would anyone listen to you? If you understand like all the things that you just outlined, yeah, then absolutely it's a great metric. If you're comparing like sets of eight at the same RPE to sets of eight you've previously done at the same RPE, you can just tell by the load if the RPEs the same and the reps are the same. You can just tell if the load's higher whether you're stronger. Like you don't need a calculation to tell you whether you're stronger. Yeah, sure. But I'm saying like, you're like the idea that... I, I'm not done. If you're... Yeah, I keep going. If you're... Like, the problem that I have with estimated to estimated 1RM is that judging RPE is so subjective person to person and then also session to session that if you walk in the gym and you feel objectively... You feel subjectively good and your lifting is just about par you're going to rate your RPEs better than you would if you were feeling bad and your lifting was subjectively par. Like that could be a difference of one and a half to two points. And if you actually plug that into an RPE calculator, you're looking at like, you know, a big difference in what you think your actual performance is based on how you felt walking into the gym. That's just one criticism. Sure, but let me respond to that very quickly. So even though I agree... And one of the reasons that I use RPE deliberately in my programs is to embrace some subjectivity around how my athletes are feeling because I want the session to feel a certain way as much as I want it to achieve a certain amount of mechanical loading. If you are using, if you're trying to get an estimated 1RM, you should probably be very strongly anchored to that like reps and reserve estimation where even if you lift feeling bad and you're like, I could go, I could have gotten two more. And likewise, even if you lift feeling good and go, that was great, I could have gotten two more, you're going to get the same answer. So like, Agree, yeah. For those but for that's those not how, purposes, But that's not how people people who are emotional about training actually do things. Because like you and I can be very objective about training mm-hmm. because we see training all the time. Yeah, objectively, I think you're shit. <laughs> <laughs> so get done. Go on. the biggest problem that i have with estimated 1rm yeah. is people using it as an absolute number like this is my this is what i'm going to do at x comp or whatever it's a good thing if you're comparing it to your own training and you're saying like okay my estimated 1rm you know three months ago is lower than what it is now i'm trending in the right direction like you mentioned earlier yeah but if you're using it like um if you if you're using it to determine your competition attempts, you're going about things the wrong way. Sure, but that's a again, I'm gonna respond. That's like saying that chainsaws are bad because people can use them to do the Texas chainsaw massacre. Like that's not bad. That's misuse of a tool. Yes, but that tool has a instruction manual and there's no instruction manual for estimated one around. There's no like caveats at play. People use the tool how they how they desire. Sure, but as in, like, if you use a tool not how it is intended, it's not the tool's fault. I know that. This is basically an argument about gun control, isn't it? Correct. Um, I'm actually very pro-gun control. Sorry, <laughs> America. Um, go on. <laughs> um, yeah, I think 
people are often too optimistic about what their actual RPEs are in training, which gives them an unrealistic expectation of what to expect at competition. I think that's the first issue. Um, And I've forgotten what I was going to say. Oh, the other thing is people's training is not necessarily a reflection of competition standards. That's the other issue. If you're programmed comp bench and you pause like half of a comp bench and you do a triple and it's RPE 9 and you plug in your estimated 1RM, you will not hit that with a comp pause. Yeah. I agree. With- Just like if you squat high for hey, two out of three reps. Don't make this personal. Just like if you deadlift with straps yeah. and you know maybe you're, you have grip issues, your estimated 1RM is going to be higher than what your actual 1RM is and you're going to get false, uh, false hope. Sure. I agree with everything that you said. All I'm saying is that those problems are not intrinsic to the tool. Oh, I agree, but that's how people use. That's how people use the tool. Yeah, but so that's, if the, that's, if the tool you said, is that's, will that means underrated, that, overrated, properly rated. People's use of X. No, but we're rating our opinion based on status quo, which no, we. No, I'm rating the opinion based off of this funky tool that I can do all sorts of stuff with if I choose to do it, which I don't always. Based on and the general public's use of the tool. That is how incorrect. this game works, Will. It no. is what is our opinion no, it's relative not. to... No, no. It's literally yeah, what no, is our is. opinion or you relative, can possibly say that oats are overrated. Relative to the population. That's what the whole point of overrated, underrated, properly rated is. Is like, I think something's worse than most people think it is. That's the whole point. Okay, well, let me ask you, let me ask you another question that I think is actually pertinent to this. What is a better tool within training for assessing whether you are making a strength improvement? That, well, I that think, doesn't that isn't just derived from estimated one RM. Well, using RPE as a measurement of difficulty and then extrapolating it out, comparing it to previous training blocks. Okay. But that is essentially what it, estimated one RM is. It is, but it takes the number. Because you can't compare it, the RPEs. It takes the number out of it. Yeah, and that's like, the whole point. Is the number gives you false hope. That's the whole point. Okay. I so like. If I, I agree a, if with I you, but double, you're doing the same thing. <laughs> like, of course, the, that's my point. <laughs> I like, as in, I know your I'll, point. I'll give an example. Go on. My client Eric had a program set of four at RPE seven. Yep. On. Monday yeah for squat his range was 210 to 220 he did 217 and a half it was a slight undershoot it was a six and a half great job his best squat is 243 his estimated 1RM from that set guess what it was 243 272 wait what did he do a double 217 for four at six and a half projected out to 272 so yeah, Anyone might look at that and go, oh, I can squat 270. When in reality, you can't squat 250 yet. Sure. That is my that is my problem. I get you. And like, not to shit on Eric, but I squatted 220 for multiple sixes recently. And my estimated 1RM was like 280 as well. Exactly. Plainly wrong. But I could compare the increase in my estimated 1RM to when I did 210 for a few sixes. Yeah. Probably think, the increase would be about 10 I think kilos. A good, I think a good I mean? way to do it, if I'm actually being critical and how I would actually use the tool. Yeah. So let's say we took that number 270. Let's say, yeah, round it down a little bit, 270. 
and then maybe he squats 250 at the comp. Yeah. We know that there's roughly, he's roughly capable of 92% of the estimated 1RM. Yeah, so then absolutely. we can use that to gauge roughly how he's going and what to expect at the next comp yeah, based off estimated 1RM. But then again, that's a separate calculation. Yeah, but some people do like make a custom RPE chart for exactly that purpose, right? Yeah. Like as in if you made my custom RPE chart, you would have a really steep fall off in squat especially in like from like reps of about three to five down towards my my actual 1RM. And, you know, for deadlifts, it might be closer to normal and for bench, it might actually be spaced a bit more than normal. Like you could do that if you wanted it to have absolute fidelity. Yeah, All I'm saying is you don't have to actually have absolute fidelity if you know what you're doing with the tool. Of course, but that's not that's not how the tool is often used. It's often misused. And that's my problem. Not sure. the actual tool itself. Okay. Well, now that we've agreed that it's about properly rated then, <laughs> Alex is just quizzical as fuck. Um, we'll wrap it up for the week. So that was Weekly Ways. Like I said at the start, please do do all the like, subscribe, respond, share business. Um, I'm Will at whatever, you know. I'm Alex, Alex Hayes underscore process. We'll talk to you guys next week.